This is Leadership Under Fire founder Jason Bresler. Several years ago, the OUF team was searching for a tactical leader who possessed a deep understanding of the creation of doctrine in tactical and high-risk industries to contribute to our endeavors. Doctrine is foundational to the development of strategy and tactical concepts in the military. Fortunately, a senior Marine officer and maneuverist connected us with Sid Hale. Sid graciously agreed to jump on a plane and fly east from California on several occasions for LUF think tank conferences as well as FDNY mental performance leaders courses. Sid was much more than a subject matter expert on doctrine. He was U.S. Marine Chief Officer 5, a combat veteran of four conflicts to include Vietnam and Operation Iraqi Freedom, a veteran LA County Sheriff, and pioneer in the fields of special tactics and tactical science, a dynamic speaker, a published author, and a carpenter. After several decades of demanding service in the U.S. Marine Corps and L.A. County Sheriff's Department, Sid could have easily elected to spend his retirement years largely relaxing with his family, but not Sid. He continued to generously devote considerable amount of time and energy to preparing warfighters and first responders to navigate complex, lethal, and emerging problem sets. Sid was gregarious, kind, and a true gentleman. He possessed an unrivaled amount of physical energy and a contagious spirit of intellectual curiosity that naturally complemented his extensive operational experience. Our team was extremely saddened to learn of Sid's sudden passing on May 24, 2022. His departure came as a shock to his family and all of those who loved him, as well as all of those of us who benefited from his wisdom. Wisdom that was undoubtedly an anchor in disorienting, complex, and lethal environments. Sid would commonly say, the principles of optimal human performance are universal. It is the application that is contextual. Our team was honored and blessed to have Sid shape our approach to preparing leaders and operators to perform optimally under pressure. We are forever grateful for Sid's tutelage and his ability to humanize the narrative. In addition to leaving behind a significant legacy in law enforcement, Sid leaves behind an even larger, enduring legacy at home. He was a devoted husband of 52 years a loving father to five children, and a grandfather of 16 grandchildren. There is solace in knowing that Sid's Christian faith was central to how he lived, led, and served, and we pray for God's blessings on his family. Hello, listeners. You're tuning in to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Today's guest is Charles Heal, who is known to many as Sid. Sid retired as a commander from the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department in 2008 after nearly 33 years of service, more than half of which was spent in units charged with handling law enforcement special and emergency operations. He was present for emergency operations at the Oklahoma City bombing, the 1992 Los Angeles riots, the 1994 Northridge earthquake, and the 2001 attacks. Sid also dedicated 35 years to the U.S. Marine Corps Reserve and served four combat tours. He is the author of the books Sound Doctrine and Field Command, as well as more than 180 articles on law enforcement subjects. He holds a bachelor's degree in police science from California State University, a master's degree in public administration from the University of Southern California, and a master's degree in management from California Polytechnic University. He is also a graduate of the FBI's National Academy and the California Command College. 
He is the president of the California Association of Tactical Officers and the national chairman for strategy development for the National Tactical Officers Association. He's a frequent teacher at the U.S. Military War Colleges and has taught throughout the world. Sid, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. I have to admit, I went down the rabbit hole while conducting my research for this interview, and I really struggled to decide even where to begin. Recent news articles have you quoted as a use of force expert. What exactly is a use of force expert? (laughs) Well, you're not the first one. (laughs) Um, Well, all expertise is relative, but in this particular case, this was a term that was coined. Well, I don't know if it was coined or not, but it was applied by both uh, the media and the attorneys when I was involved in court cases. But in the basic understanding, it's simply a person who can identify the factors and influences involved in a conflict and explain them well enough so that others understand. And I'm sure that comes from many years of experience. Yes. Basically, the safety services are involved with three different types of crises. Uh, the natural crises are those like earthquakes and floods and fires. Uh, and then there is the technical or mechanical type. Uh, and these deal with things that uh, have a man-made influence, like car crashes and hazmat spills uh, and building fires. Conflicts, though, are unique in the sense that you have an opposing will, Uh, someone who is actively attempting to thwart the will of the commander. Uh, And these tend to be very, very complex. And so uh, they're so complex that these adversarial ones are called conflicts. Mm Mm-hmm. And so when would people turn to a use of force expert? The most common is court. Mm -hmm. I can't even tell you how many times I've testified or how many different states. But it's usually an incident that's controversial. It's not clear by nature. uh, And they need someone to explain the factors and influences in play, how they were affecting the combatants, and why it turned out as it did. And Mm -hmm. needless to say that most of the times I get called is when the police are criticized. Mm -hmm. Well, we all start somewhere. And I want to talk about when you began your career as an investigator with the L.A. County District Attorney's Office in 1975 after graduating number one in your class from the Rio Hundo Police Academy. You served in this capacity until joining the L.A. County Sheriff's Department in 1977, where again you graduated number one in your class, this time from the Sheriff's Academy. Clearly, a career in law enforcement was your calling. Did you always know that this is what you wanted to pursue as a profession? No, it never once occurred to me. I was born on a farm in Michigan. I joined the Marine Corps when I was 18 years old, simply because Nobody in those days could get a job if you were classified 1A. The draft in those days was based on a classification rather than a lottery system. And so as a result of that, if you were 1A, which I was, no employer wanted to pay for your training or anything and then have you drafted. And then he has to hold the job open for when you came back. Now, needless to say, that was one of the big reasons they changed that. But in any event, When I was 18 and was off to the Marine Corps, I had my first bus ride, my first plane ride. Uh, I had my first taxi ride. I stayed in my first hotel. Uh, I saw my first movie. I saw a color television uh, at the lobby of a hotel that we were staying in. And I had not given one thought uh, to what I wanted to do with my life 
other than the fact that I had always just expected that I would either be a carpenter or a farmer, which was pretty much what all my family was doing about that time. It wasn't until I was a sophomore in college that I took a class in, I, I think it was just introduction to law enforcement. I needed an elective. Uh, and then it was so interesting. I took another one in evidence, which was pretty challenging, but I found that even more interesting. And by the time I was a junior, I had to declare a major, and that's where it really started. So from that point on is when I really decided. And I really, to be honest with you, I didn't even consider it a calling mm-hmm. until I actually was in in the job. And you're right. It's far more than a profession. It's far more than a career. It's definitely more than a job. Uh, it was something that I would have done literally for free if I could have lived some way other. other. Uh, in fact, I've offered to do that several times. <laughs> uh, wow, that's that's amazing. And I, I guess given your background, you know, during the course of your careers with the USMC and the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, You've worked with a considerable number of leaders and commanders. Were there any in particular that had a profound impact on you? If so, who and, oh, and yeah. why? Good and bad. Uh, right. I remember one captain in Vietnam that uh, I turned uh, one day on a hot summer day in the spring of 1970 and, uh, and told the guy I was with, Bob Wesley, I said, the only thing that guy's got on me is four years of college. If I ever get out of this alive, I'm going back to school. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what, what happened. I had the GI Bill when I came back and went back to school. But this guy couldn't find a giraffe in a flock of sheep. How in the world he got to be a Marine Corps officer, I have no idea. Now, interesting enough, in my whole career in the Marine Corps, I only saw that repeated one other time. Uh, the vast majority uh, were examples. Matter of fact, in some cases, they were more than examples. They were inspirations. But some really stand out. Uh, probably the one that had the biggest influence in my career was a colonel. I, I first met him as a captain. That's one of the advantages uh, of being old, I guess, is that we went up through the the, uh, the ranks together. Mm-hmm. But his name was uh, Tim Anderson. And uh, just to sum up some of the things that, that he would teach I was a CWO5 many years after we'd first met, and we had a special assignment where he got to select Marines from literally all over the Marine Corps. And I mean, by that, I mean literally all over the world. And so we'd all flown in. We were at Camp Pendleton uh, coming up with this assignment. Uh, and he said, he called us all together, and he said, if the only thing we do uh, is select the right people, we will succeed. Uh, even though we don't know what we're doing, if we find out the people that we, that do, uh, they'll provide the guidance. He said, uh, our job is to put square pegs in square holes and find round pegs for round holes. And we all started laughing because it sounded so simple. And he waited till we were done. There's probably 20 or 25 of us. I was the lowest rank there, the vast majority. In fact, I think I was the only one that wasn't a field grade officer. Everybody else was majors and lieutenant colonels and colonels. Uh, in any of that, what he said was, is that don't think that's easy. In some cases, you need to find the square pegs for the square holes. But in some cases, you've got a round hole and you need to go find a round, a round peg. Boy, I cannot tell you uh, how many times 
that concept has been applied. The application could be pretty tough, but the concept was pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Another one was a guy named uh, J.D. Harris. J.D. Harris was an interesting guy in the sense that he was a deputy. He never outranked me. Uh, he eventually got his Ph.D., but uh, he became a mentor. Uh, he's one of the most caring people I've ever met. It's not something that is artificial. Uh, it was just the, his nature. Uh, he cared about how you felt. He cared about how uh, you were doing and your family. Uh, and he really gave me an example, another inspiration. Another one was uh, really kind of funny. Uh, I didn't really work with him. I'd known him for 30 years before he ended up working for me. I'd been promoted to captain and was assigned to the Special Enforcement Bureau, and he was uh, my SWAT commander. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the things that I had done is we had uh, what we call command-level debriefings. When we get done with an exceptionally complex operation, I called just the command staff, just the major decision makers, into my office. We never took notes. Nothing ever left the the room that uh, was embarrassing to anybody. Uh, But we basically critiqued each other, to include me. Uh, And some of it, as you can imagine, was pretty sensitive, because even though we weren't being criticized by the outside, we were uh, holding ourselves to such a high standard that it was a bloodletting, for lack of a better term. But he was one of these guys that could just cut right to the heart of the matter and make you laugh at the same time. I used to write on his evaluations, uh, incisively witty. I can remember one time after a two and a half hour debriefing, we literally uh, could not work ourselves through this. And so I finally asked my lieutenant, I said, okay, so how do we avoid this in the future? And it just went deathly silent. Nobody could really think of a, of a definitive answer. And I just let it go. It went on for several minutes and we're looking at each other and we're thinking and Finally, Daryl goes, well, this is no place for the meek. And everybody just burst out laughing because he was so true when he said that. Uh, And then, obviously, I think we all are influenced heavily by people that we love. In my case, it was my own father, um, who I really never thought of as a leader until I was quite old. Uh, But I found myself emulating a lot of his coping skills I I wish I could do it as well as he did it, but he was one of these people that almost never got mad. And my whole life with him, I've never seen him lose his temper. Not once. I can't say that about myself or anybody that I know, but this is a guy that was just rock solid. Uh, But at the same time, he was unbending. Um, When I finally got to be a supervisor in the sheriff's department, Uh, One of the things that I had started doing was incorporating my subordinates. This is, I got to tell you, this is one of the best things I ever did. Uh, It was something I came up with on my own in the sense that I was intimidated by the fact that a lot of my subordinates knew more than I did. I was a fairly new sergeant. Uh, I got promoted uh, largely because I could take tests well. Uh, I don't think that I knew more. Uh, I certainly don't think that I was better at it. But one of the things that I did is that uh, I remembered things that I didn't like. Uh, For instance, when we'd write a police report, uh, some of the sergeants would circle issues 
that they had a problem with. Well, the problem is, is that then we were required to rewrite the whole police report because if that circle made it into court, it gave the defense attorneys a, a means of impeaching us. Well, to me, it was just demeaning. So one of the things I did is I used to check on the left-hand side of the report things that needed to be fixed. Uh, and I used to check on the right of the report things that could be better but didn't necessarily have to be rewritten. Uh, but the bottom line is you could erase these little ticks without having to rewrite the whole report. Boy, I can't tell you the number of uh, suggestions I got in arguments uh, that actually worked in my favor because I was approving these reports. So from that inauspicious beginning, one of the things I started doing as a practice, and I continued that all the way through uh, my management years, right up until I was a captain, was that if you could catch me in a mistake, that was a free Coke. I'd buy you a free Coke. Mm -hmm. If you could catch me in a mistake on law or ethics, uh, I would uh, I would buy you a dinner. And then when I finally became a lieutenant, I was doing uh, internal investigations, uh, what we call station level or unit level reviews. And these are long before the days of the, the cameras or the uh, the video recordings or anything. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the deputies had taken upon themselves to carry their own audio recordings. And I used to give a, anybody a dinner for two for any incident that I had to investigate where they had a tape recording. Uh, everybody told me I was crazy, but the bottom line is the deputies aren't stupid enough to give me uh, tape recording that was going to put them in a bad light. Mm -hmm. And anything they gave me simplified the investigative uh, issue immensely. And so as a result of that, uh, I saw myself in a role rather than a title or a rank or anything. Uh, and they would come to me for advice and I didn't have any problems, uh, going to them for advice and they didn't look down upon me if I came to them for advice and then ignored it. <laughs> so, so as a, as a general rule, that really shaped me and how I dealt with some of the more difficult problems. Well, thank you. Those are some really wonderful examples of leadership. Switching gears, as I mentioned in the intro, you're a published author, and much of your writing centers on tactical science. Can you give our listeners a definition of tactical science and some information on its origins? Yes. Uh, it's actually the origins go back thousands of years, at least 5,000 years. But we've got documentation that goes back 2,500 years. And it's kind of interesting is because it wasn't something that was apparent to me, but gradually grew. My, when I first got to Vietnam, I was 18, as I mentioned. I had just turned 19, and the guy that broke me in was a guy named Gunnery Sergeant Harris. Gunnery Harris was a Korean War veteran, and he basically took me under his wing. And I got to tell you, uh, I did not do well with that close to supervision. In fact, I am probably the only Marine in history that knows how many sandbags come on a pallet, because that's how he punished me. I would fill sandbags. There's 2,000, if anybody ever asked. And I would get issued so many sandbags that they call me the champion sandbag filler of Northern I-Corps. Uh, but he would point something out, and he said, okay, now how would you solve that? And it didn't matter if it was a hill or a road or a river crossing. Uh, he would say, well, if you do it that way, this is what's going to happen. Or if you do it this way, uh, you can expect to be able to do this afterwards. 
So it really got to me thinking of it. And because I had a, a strong sense of uh, strong desire to survive, uh, I paid a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And I would like to say that began and continued, but it didn't. I stopped when I got out of the Marine Corps, never imagining to ever be an incident where I would ever have that useful again. And I became a deputy, uh, well, a police officer in 1975. By 1985, mm-hmm. actually 1984, I was a sergeant and was assigned to the one of our, we have six full-time special enforcement teams. In any event, um, we were losing people, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were shooting us. We were getting shot by them and, and shooting them. Uh, my first two call-outs, we had bodies before we left. Uh, this was at the height of the drug wars and the rock houses. The Marlitos were there. Uh, and I just couldn't stand the thought of losing a deputy mm-hmm. because I wasn't up to speed. Uh, I had seen that in Vietnam. Uh, it literally collapsed people. I've seen officers weeping because they were writing uh, letters home. And so I went back and started revisiting everything I knew at the time. And that began, oh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's more than a desire. Uh, literally a, for lack of a better term, I'll just say a need, an urgent need to find out what was involved in making good decisions and bad decisions and crises. And so from 1985 to 19, oh, late 1990s, I was just studying. In any event, uh, it just gradually occurred to me that we weren't really using the science in law enforcement. Now I can say that it wasn't just my department, it was industry-wide. And so I began uh, writing. In fact, I was on my second master's degree and had written a paper called A Scientific Approach to Tactical Decisions. It met with such uh, reviews that it was published as a series of articles, and then the magazine publisher wanted to publish it as a book. Mm-hmm. In any event, uh, I decided, well, maybe I should actually write a book, but I wanted it simple enough so that nobody would feel isolated if they hadn't been in the military and law enforcement. And so I used competitive games like soccer and football and baseball and basketball. Mm-hmm. And from that, uh, it just grew. And I started to end up testifying and so forth. But if you really want to know what it is, uh, the, the actual technical title or the technical definition is the systemized body of knowledge covering the principles and doctrine associated with crises. Uh, and it's an applied science rather than uh, just a, a knowledgeable science in the sense that uh, it attempts to put these things in context. The concepts are universal, but the applications are contextual. So the concepts are where the science comes from, but the applications is where the art comes from. And they require both to be a good commander in times of crisis. So, Thank you. And on that note, and this next question alone could make up an entire podcast episode, you've provided performance leaders across the globe with an improved understanding of human behavior in high-risk settings. What do you see as the most critical elements of optimal human performance in tactical law enforcement and military organizations? Uh, I think it would be the factors and influences in play. We don't recognize them until they're so obvious that everybody else can tell you. So 
if you recognize that as a science instead of an art, that that is a major step right off the bat. But to be honest with you, it's not the fact that we've overlooked it as much as that we've ignored it. The military has taken such a more scientific approach to solving these things, uh, and we ignore it uh, in many cases in law enforcement because there is a stigmata uh, attached to it, a stigma that uh, there's something inherently evil in the fact that they're dealing with a similar problem, but not an exact problem. So they use terms like enemy and battle, uh, where we use terms like adversary and operational space and so forth. But uh, once we recognize that there is a science, we also have to understand that we can teach it, and we don't. And that's been one of the biggest frustrating things. And interesting enough, um, when I got back from Iraq the last time, this is in 2003, that was my fourth combat tour in four different wars. So I had a, a, a different perspective than people that had had more combat tours, but in the same war. Uh, and the Marine Corps historians had taken me aside and were asking me, how do you compare this with that and everything? And because I had studied it for so long, I think I gave them some fairly intelligent answers. But when I came back to work, I was a commander by that time, higher than a captain. And one of the things that I had to do uh, that was my first assignment was to determine why, when we have multiple officers, we're shooting more and hitting less. Mm -hmm. And so I began studying, and some of the tactics, to be honest with you, were fiascos. Uh, there's no way else of describing it. And so I had recommended that we... Uh, put a class together, a science class. And so we did one. We did one in the uh, fall of 2004. We did another one in 2005. By 2006, we were doing two classes a year. This is all staffed on volunteers. Nobody was getting paid, and the students uh, were coming from wherever they wanted to come from. By 2007, we were doing three. By 2008, I had decided to retire, but now there was such a demand that we were getting 10 or 12. And then from that point on, it just went on. Now, interesting enough, my first book, Sound Doctrine, was a primer written to teach people that there is a science and how it applies. Uh, and we based the classes with that as the textbook. The second book was a full-length text, Field Command, and that was based on the questions that we got from the students that had taken the classes. So it just went from there. Mm -hmm. And I do want to talk to you a little bit more about your books in a little bit. But while we're on the topic of uh, human factors, is there a particular human or mental performance theme or topic that you believe has been neglected but potentially provides an opportunity to improve performance for tactical populations? I don't know about a particular, but maybe uh, an area. Mm -hmm. uh, quite a bit of research has been done on the physical aspects. We're getting better at the emotional aspects. And that's, that's an important one because that was one of the things that uh, struck me. I think I was as resilient as anybody else, but I had PTSD and wasn't aware of it. Uh, I was uh, completely unaware of the, the amount of information on it. I mean, it goes back to the Roman era. It's been documented. But for our purposes here, uh, the emotional part has a major effect on how well we're going to do. One of the things that had happened was a, an air crash in Florida resulted in 20% of the safety services workers that worked on the air crash uh, retiring 
from PTSD within five years, 20% casualty. So it doesn't matter whether they were injured or whatever uh, physically, we lost them. We lost their expertise. Mm -hmm. We ended up paying retirements. And so as a result of that, it did a turnaround. But my problem was that I had gone 16 years without uh, having it recognized. And so I had developed what they call socially impaired coping skills. Mm. <laughs> uh, it took a long time to deal with that. Mm -hmm. And so that was the second one, the emotional. Mm -hmm. And then the last one uh, is there is a mental performance part. Uh, and I think that really needs to start with the fact by preparing people for what they can expect. There really is no training that could begin, at least not in my experience in my studies, uh, to prepare for the trauma, uh, the need to be able to act in the midst of chaos uh, with insufficient information and harsh time constraints and potentially catastrophic consequences. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the one thing that really attracted my attention was when Jason Bresler got a hold of me uh, because they were using sound doctrine, mm -hmm. uh, he immediately captured my imagination because it was the first organization that I was aware of that was taking this project uh, holistically. Mm -hmm. Well, you're Not talking about the FDNY's Mental Performance Initiative. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there are other agencies now that are doing it as a project or a program, mm -hmm. but I've never seen anybody uh, that's doing it, including my own department, mm -hmm. uh, and they, they take it seriously, and they have required classes, but it's inculcated right from the bottom up. As a matter of fact, it's kind of interesting. I've been studying this for years, and I think I'm fairly uh, up to speed on it, but I sat in some of the briefings, especially with the senior chiefs, and I was taking notes. As a matter of fact, I used one of your chiefs, and I wish I could remember his name, but he's in my notes. Mm -hmm. I ended up sitting over there because uh, he has, uh, usually on Tuesday nights, they have like a debriefing, and they just sit around and shuck and jive with the, uh, with the senior chiefs. Mm -hmm. I ended up with two pages of handwritten notes from stuff that he just made so clear, mm -hmm. so obvious. It was like, uh, well, I've heard that before, but I've never heard it better. I do want to talk to you more about MPI, which is actually where we met. But before we get there, you used a key word before that I wanted to ask you about. You used the word resilience. What is your personal definition of resilience? Oh, I would say the ability to remain focused while continually adapting, especially to obstructions. Uh, these situations are dynamic. That's one of the five things that, that define them. They're dynamic in the sense that they're in a constant state of change. And so a plan that's implemented at the beginning bears just a resemblance of the one that's usually ended up because uh, dogmatic adherence to a plan is trying to force the circumstances to fit your idea of how it should happen rather than adapting to the plan to the circumstances. So the person that's resilient is going to remain focused without uh, deviating from the desired end state. Uh, and as a result of that, they're going to be far better to identify the priorities and overlook the obstructions and adapt than the person that is simply going to try to implement a plan. That's great individually. How do you think resilience impacts organizations as large as the USMC and L.A. County, organizations consistently navigating and managing risk in many forms in order to provide security? I think 
that the cultural ethos or the organizational ethos, the deeply held beliefs, are basically an extension of the the resilience of the individual. Mm. Uh, and I think it's a two-way street. People are going to influence the organization, and the organization is going to influence the people. But to the degree that we punish failure and we punish uh, subordinates for doing the best they can with what they have, I think we're going to force them into the box because it's not survivable, especially in a big organization. So as a result of that, uh, I think as executives especially, but also managers, we need to be aware that if we're going to develop the initiative and the adaptability of our troops, we're also going to have to be willing to underwrite their honest mistakes uh, and simply use it as a learning thing without automatically imposing punishment. So on that note, as a U.S. Marine Chief Warrant Officer 5, you served as both a technical expert and advisor to infantry commanders. What was your trigger line for candidly challenging a senior commander in instances where you believed he was committing to a course of action that you feared would be detrimental or being one-dimensional in his thinking? Oh, that's a tough one. (laughs) Well, needless to say, even though I was a CWO 5, I was a company-grade officer. So I was nearly always subordinate to whoever I was working with. Mm -hmm. That said... Uh, a CDFO 5 has a huge amount of prestige, even without the authority. If it was just a mistake, I I felt obligated. He he had expected to be, at least the people I like to work for, expected to be uh, candid and frank and point things out. As long as nobody was going to get hurt, I could live with it. Uh, And I had to tell myself with this. Uh, And to be honest with you, there's a certain amount of sick satisfaction to find out that my advice wasn't followed and resulted in my prediction. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) And needless to say, that also builds up a certain amount of prestige all by itself. Mm -hmm. The single exception, though, was when somebody was going to get hurt. And and I literally dug my heels in Mm -hmm. Uh, to the point uh, when it occurred in law enforcement, uh, to the point of being transferred. Yeah. Ridiculed, scorned. But in the long run. Uh, I think they saw that my uh, my motivations were pure, even if I uh, was not the most diplomatic in trying to present it. So, yeah, what are some of the principles that you adhere to when challenging a senior commander? Well, first of all, understand that uh, insubordination is the fastest way to get relieved for cause or fired in the law enforcement uh, of anything that I can think of. Mm-hmm. Uh, But there are three means, for lack of a better term, uh, that are expected. For instance, and it's drilled into us, one is an unlawful act. We don't break the laws to enforce the laws. And so if we're committing to a course of an action that requires an unlawful act, uh, we are absolutely required not to follow that order. And we will be punished if we do. Uh, One is Another one is morally repugnant. It's difficult to think of a situation because we all share the same cultural norms. But every once in a while, you find someone that their moral compass is oriented differently than ours. Uh, It could be uh, lying or putting someone in harm's way that uh, did not have to accept the risk or was not a willing participant. I'm I'm trying to think of something because it's very difficult. Uh, But that's highly subjective. Uh, And then the last one is when it's patently unsafe. 
Uh, not that it's risk-free. We're all expected to accept some risk. But when it's so obvious that someone is going to get hurt or killed, I think we have an obligation to be insubordinate on that. And to be honest with you, in all my career, that's only happened one time. But understand this, too. All orders are presumed to be uh, lawful. Uh, and if not along the lines of uh, morally and ethically, then at least not patently against it. And if they're not risk-free, then they're not patently unsafe. And so as a result of that, the point here I'm trying to make is that the burden to support insubordination is 100% the responsibility of the subordinate. Mm -hmm. So I want to unpack something here. It's probably safe to say that sometimes leaders do the right thing and are inevitably punished for outcomes beyond their control or because of the political, legal, or media implications or optics? What counsel do you have for leaders in their preparation for moral dilemmas where they have to make a choice between what's right and doing things right? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, Well, first of all, if you've got a moral compass, Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe most people do, I think you have an obligation to live up to your own standards first. The easiest person to fool on a moral problem is yourself. Uh, in fact, I used to write myself notes that the first step in resolving any moral problem was to identify those options which were self-serving. But uh, I'll give you, uh, in fact, I could actually give you examples, but the bottom line was is that in many cases, it was not a moral dilemma, means which one was right, but we knew which one was right, but we lacked the moral courage to choose it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... I don't even know how to say this. I give you the example that happened to me, mm-hmm. uh, and it wasn't pleasant. But in the long run, it turned out to be one of the things that I was remembered for when I retired. So, and it's not anything that I had ever even brought up, but my troops brought it up on my behalf. Uh, we had a, a high risk warrant uh, in which uh, a suspect armed with a an Uzi submachine gun was selling cocaine right across the street from a junior high school. The warrant that we had was for a daytime service. Uh, we tried to get it to, to uh, get a nighttime service, and the judge wouldn't endorse it. So we're terrified that uh, we can't serve it on a weekend because the, he gets rid of the dope on the weekends, and he's gone. So what happened was is that we scouted the location, and we went back and forth, and we went undercover and timed how long it took to cross the perimeter. Mm-hmm. And I, I can remember to this day, it was 20 seconds. So we doubled that to 45 seconds. And then we doubled it again to 90 seconds. And we called that our window. And if we could get into that house within 90 seconds, we knew that we could prevent them from putting the, the kids in danger. And then we also realized that the kids are going to be walking to school. And so what happened was we put all of our containment people, which are usually in SWAT, uh, in Class A uniforms, so they looked like regular policemen. The belief was is that they would be more likely to follow the orders of a person that looked like a policeman than a person that looked like SWAT. In any event, uh, we spent more than 120 work hours trying to develop this plan, and then the commander, uh, now I was a sergeant at this time, so it's been some years ago, the commander uh, did not want to get up in the morning to come to the 2 o'clock in the morning briefing. And so as a result of that, he's unaware of all of our safety procedures in this. Now, we knew we were going to be compromised. 
we were willing to accept the risk to make the entry uh, within that 90-second window, believing that he wasn't going to be able to get to the gun because we were pretty sure we knew where the gun was. In any event, what happened was is that the, uh, we set it in place, uh, and I started the, the time uh, clock, and then the commander looks up and he goes, hold fire on that. And I go, sir? And he starts yelling, I said stop. He's literally screaming at me now. Now I'm running up, and by the way, my, my watch is on the stopwatch, so I'm watching this because of that 90-second window. He's literally in a full meltdown screaming at me to get this operation stopped. Because he doesn't know all the safety issues that we've got involved in here. So 28 seconds, I can remember to this day, I I put a board, a board, a board, which pulls everybody back. Well, in the meantime, in this 28 seconds, exactly what we thought was going to happen. Uh, we're seen, uh, we're compromised, and I can hear on the radio, compromise, compromise, compromise. Uh, and uh, so I don't have time to run the plan by him in the 60 seconds we have remaining. So I go up to him. I says, okay, we're going to abort this operation. And because I have tactical control, even though he has command. And I said, we're going to abort this operation. And he says, no, we're here to serve a warrant. And I said, sir, that the, the dope is cooked. The suspect is armed. If we're going to do it now, we're going to do it as a call out, not as a dynamic entry. And he, he orders me, no, we're going to do it the way we had it planned. I said, the way we had a plan is not going to work now. And I'm trying to explain this to him. And finally, I just said, no, we're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, needless to say, he outranked me uh, five or six pay grades. And he was livid. How dare I, as a sergeant, uh, over overrule him? In the meantime, uh, what we did is we uh, had him go door to door, all the uniformed officers, and knock on the doors as if they were looking for a lost kid to give a plausible explanation for all the numbers of policemen that were out here. And we did leave. Uh, in any event, the dope was cooked. The suspect uh, did not get the gun. That was one good thing. Um, but the dope was gone. Uh, we didn't have the warrant. Uh, the, the detectives that had gotten the warrant were livid. I was upset. In fact, I was so mad. It takes a lot to get me mad. But my troops were afraid I was going to say something else and put me in a radio car and drove me back to the station mm. uh, so that I wouldn't say anything that I was going to get fired for. And when I got there, the captain shows up and uh, he says, I know you want to do a debriefing. Do you want to do it now or wait until after the regular debriefing? I was so mad I couldn't even talk. And the captain looked at me, he goes, we'll do it now. And he calls all his lieutenants in. And I went in there and I, I just unloaded. Because once I do get mad, it takes a long time for me to, to get cool. I said, sir, I just want to understand one thing. We just spent 120 man hours trying to put an operation together that this uh, commander uh, can't get up for a couple of hours on his own to find out what's going on. If we're going to do that, why should we go to this problem? We'll just do whatever he says. He's obviously the tactical expert. And I just basically vented. Mm -hmm. I went on for five solid minutes without repeating myself. And the captain looks right at me. And when I finally took a breath, uh, literally all the lieutenants by now are, are looking for cover because they, I am just beyond reasoning. And he looks at me and he goes, you're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, and then the captain puts his coat on. He says, I'm going to go apologize to the troops and then I'm going to go see the commander. And now we're worried about the captain getting rolled up. 
So I said, sir, you don't need to do that. He said, yes, I do. I was in command of that part. And what had happened was he had to leave the command post because we'd been sitting up most of the night and he had to go to the bathroom. And so he wasn't there for that particular incident. The bottom line was, is that I got trans. Well, I didn't get transferred on that one, but the bottom line was, is that, um, I never gave it another thought. Uh, the captain apologized. The troops apologized to the troops. Uh, years later, and I mean not just on one occasion, but multiple occasions, they remembered. Uh, and at one point in time, one of the guys walked up to me and said, uh, Sid, if you'd have said to go, we'd have followed you and ignored him. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I'm really touched, but let's understand this. That would have been my last official act. Uh, they would have fired me for cause and justifiably. It was his call to make. The fact that I thought it was a bad call did not remove uh, his authority to make that call. And so the guy that would have been replacing me would have been a guy that would not have stood up. Uh, Now, the interesting thing, I don't think that commander ever realized how serious that decision was and how much more danger it was going to put our troops in. But apparently the chief did, because when the chief retired, the chief came over to me, and this is years later. By that time, I was a lieutenant to shake my hand for having the courage to stand up when nobody else was there uh, and make the call uh, to avoid getting somebody hurt. I said, Chief, how do you even know that, and why are you bringing it up now? He says, I I could not overrule him then, uh, but be assured that we had a conversation on this, uh, as did every one of my subordinates afterwards. So doing the right thing uh, is subjective. Uh, and it is not for the timid or the meek, as uh, as Daryl said, uh, but it's something that you're going to have to do if you're going to be able to rel- live with yourself. If I could just change one thing and we'd have followed that order and gone in uh, while the guy knew that we were compromised and he had gotten me and shot one of my guys, how much worse would I have felt mm-hmm. and how much worse would he have felt? So. So the bottom line is, is that it's an exceedingly rare situation, but something that you probably as a leader ought to think about ahead of time, because when it comes, you're not going to be able to put your thoughts uh, in rational, logical order, because there's a huge amount of emotion attached to that. Right. I greatly appreciate you sharing that and really giving context to your perspective. While I have you here today, I want to touch on the active shooter threat. Um, From your perspective, how do you think leaders who don't have a tactical military or law enforcement background can enhance or address their psychological resilience? Well, one of the things is recognize that there's a lot of science to support their decision making. They're not making this in context. There's a huge amount of uh, concepts, conceptual ideas that they can use. There's basically two kinds of sciences. One science is the hard sciences. The hard sciences are like mathematics, physics, chemistry. Uh, They have hard solutions, one solution. It doesn't matter who puts the data in, you're gonna get the one answer. But there's also soft sciences, and then tactical science is a soft science. Mm -hmm. Soft sciences are every bit as real. Sociology, psychology, uh, economics, those are all social sciences. Well, what happened, I'm sorry, uh, soft sciences. The soft sciences don't use formulas or algorithms. 
They use probabilities and interpretations. Well, one of the things that we can say, sadly, is that we've had enough active shooters that we have data that we can use to make decisions. And I'll just give you some that are so lopsided that it's nearly conclusive by itself. The chances of having a female shooter, 3%. Chances of it being male, 97%. Chances of having two shooters, 2%. Chances of having a, a single male, 98%. Well, needless to say, this provides a huge amount of confidence that if you're going to go looking for a suspect, it's going to be a lone male. And we'll just start with that because there's many other things that are like that. But one of the big things is, is that uh, we can't get there fast enough to save the hostages, to save the, the victims. And so as a result of that, the victims are going to have to accept some responsibility for saving themselves. For instance, if they can hide for just 15 minutes, the chances of them surviving skyrocket. Uh, but there's some other things that apply specifically to the safety services. One is that there's going to be no exemptions. Uh, we have had active shooters uh, in places like Jonesboro, Arkansas, and Springfield, Oregon. They're not going to try to take on a team the size of the NYPD and the ESU uh, or the LASD and LAPD SWAT. Uh, they're going to look for the soft targets, the ones that are actually terrorists. Uh, we also know that there are certain things that we are better at. Mm -hmm. Firefighters, for instance, are better at rescue and paramedics. Our paramedics, and we have paramedics, so I have a, a huge department, and I have paramedics assigned to the SWAT team with SWAT training, but there's only 17 of them for 98 people. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that if I've got 50 casualties, like we had about 25 miles from here at uh, San Bernardino, California, we are going to have to depend on firefighter paramedics. But on the other hand, they're not equipped and they're not trained to go in the hot zone. So we're going to have to, to provide the protection, that particular function for them, so that they don't get distracted in carrying people out. One of the things when I took over as the captain of the Special Enforcement Bureau, I wrote a strategic plan, a plan that went three years into the future. And that was one of the things that I pointed out is that the modern tactical situations that we're experiencing are going to require a seamless integration of specialized skills. And it crosses disciplinary borders as well as jurisdictional borders. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, uh, we have got to start working together. Mm -hmm. So you push my button on that. I've actually studied uh, active shooters as a, a separate discrete type of incident mm -hmm. for several years and have published several papers on it as a result. Uh, and there's a lot of data out there that is simply uh, very similar to tactical science as nice to know rather than need to know. You were a participant in 2017's uh, Leadership Under Fire Complex Attack Think Tank. I wasn't there for it, but I, I've heard a lot about it. And you referred to complex attacks that potentially involve gunfire explosions and fire as come-as-you-are events. What does come-as-you-are mean? means that you don't have time to get anything. You don't have time to go get equipment. You don't have time to get into different clothing or add armor proofing. Uh, it's basically, and we got the term as a party, come as you are party. It's the first person. As a matter of fact, one of the things that uh, is very problematic with law enforcement, not so much with the fire services, is that the most common criteria for selecting an incident commander is not experience. It's not knowledge. It is 
who's on duty. And so as a result of that, if you're not prepared, and by now I'm talking to watch commanders and incident commanders and law enforcement, if you're not prepared, there is no time to do anything else when these events unfold. And you touched on joint tactics earlier. So what do you think is required in order for first responders to develop joint tactics that are responsive to this lethal and complex threat that potentially requires firefighters to be exposed to the effects of gunfire and explosions and law enforcement exposure to the byproducts of fire like heat and smoke? Oh, yeah. Uh <laughs> That's, I have so many examples on this, I can't even begin. But, uh, we'll have to have another, another, another oh, podcast. Uh, we, as, as Flip Wilson one time said, during the height of the civil rights crisis, and we used to have this on a poster uh, in Vietnam because we were there at the time that uh, the, uh, the civil rights era was really going. Uh, and needless to say, there's black and, and white and Hispanic Marines and Oriental, but we had a poster that uh, is Flip Wilson, uh, who was a comedian at the time, was down in a fight in a hole with a white guy. Uh, and they're being attacked. And this is why it was so relevant to Vietnam. But he turns to this guy, uh, Flip Wilson says, and he says, you know, we may have come over in different ships, but we're in the same boat now. Mm. Uh, and we thought that was the funniest thing. And that's where we're finding ourselves right now. During the 1992 riots, one of the things that happened was a fire captain came to me uh, as we were, had just arrived because they had set the Vargas Furniture Company on fire. Huge furniture factory with train car loads of lumber, and it was burning. But one of the things that had happened was is that we had seen a propane tank probably the size of a large room at the back of the, the building. And so I grabbed the fire chief and I said, uh, the fire captain, I said, sir, you need to come and see this. I'm a sergeant at the time. He says, no, we're, we're, we got to get the... Uh, the, uh, the hoses, the lines down. I said, sir, you need to come and see this because I don't know what we got. So he follows me back. And when we got back there, the paint was blistering off this propane tank. Now, I don't know anything about fires. Uh, but one of the things that happened is he took off running. Now, in police work, we call that a clue. So we took off running with him. And then he had one fire truck that did nothing but put water on that. He told us if that tank would have gone, we'd have lost that city block. In any event, uh, that was just one of the examples where they knew more than we did. And I have so many examples of that. On the other hand, there's other incidents, same thing. We'll, we'll just use the riots as we already started with that. They were shooting the firefighters. Holy mackerel, we could not imagine. So we ended up having to assign full squads to fire companies. Uh, and when they would uh, come up to put out fires, uh, we had to uh, put a perimeter around it to protect them from being fired. Uh, it goes on and on it, with active shooters and rescues and everything else. Is is that uh, we have to recognize the fact that nobody can be skilled at everything. Nobody can be that knowledgeable. So as a result of that, we're going to have to integrate our skills into a comprehensive effort that is mutually supporting, where there is no competition. Uh, our end state is the same. Mm -hmm. That was one of the most exciting things that I started seeing mm -hmm. in, uh, when I started going to the first, the first one with, uh, with Jason Bresler was at the, uh, uh, the discussions that we were having. So it, it really opened up some of my eyes because there were issues that I had never suspected before. If you want to, I'll give you another example. I don't know how much time you have, but uh, I'll give you another example. 
we had a major exercise. I'll just give you one example. But one of the things that happened was is that we found a uh, powder in the uh, the um, Los Angeles uh, Convention Center. And so being the police officers that we are, it's a terrorist event, uh, our idea is to get an inch and a half standing hose and just wash it down the drain. Uh, and there's a firefighter sitting right next to me at the um, emergency operations center. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. If you do that, you're going to contaminate wherever that goes. If we weren't going to be able to get it. We're going to have to tear everything up. He says, okay, okay, so what do you want me to do? And he thinks a second. He says, get some hairspray and spray it. I said, what? He says, yeah, hairspray has lacquer in it. And if you spray it, it'll stick to the carpet, and then we'll just rip up the carpet. So I pass that to the troops in the field. But I use that as an example of how that little bit of knowledge mm-hmm. tremendously simplified our ability to make an appropriate decision instead of just defaulting to what we had been erroneously taught. And that's probably one of the best examples of the integration of two different types of knowledge to get a, a solid, comprehensive, and effective course of action. So the first um, FDNY Mental Performance Initiative Leaders course was held back in 2016. And at the end of this week-long endeavor, as you've mentioned today, but at the time, you told me that you thought the initiative was light years ahead. So what are your feelings on the initiative? You've alluded to it a little bit, but now if you want to articulate that a little bit more. Well, even sadly, is is that I think it's still the case. I say sadly for everybody else, not for you. But uh, the first thing is, is that they were not just and and are not, because I've been back there several times since then. uh, They're not just focusing on an extension of the the future as we see it as as reflecting the present, but on as a future as a realistic likelihood based upon all the factors that we are recognizing in. The second thing is, is that it was challenging the paradigms and assumptions. As soon as, in fact, many of this case was in the moderated discussions, when someone would come up with a course of action, and it was almost like a red teaming event, and somebody else would say, well, what if? And all of a sudden, there was immediate uh, adaptability, and uh, I never thought of that. And so they had thought it through. And one of the things in my studies that I've learned is that experts don't start at the beginning. They start where they left off. Mm-hmm. And even, even having thought through the situation just one time provides them a huge advantage over those that are experiencing it for the first time. Uh, if I had to, to give it just a description, uh, it still remains the most comprehensive and thought-provoking program I've seen anywhere in the world. And I have literally been all over the world teaching this, including my own department and my own discipline. As a matter of fact, I just wrote uh, a paper that is difficult to publish because it sounds so critical of the law enforcement profession in the United States that addresses this very thing. Now, your book, Sound Doctrine, was published in 2000, but still carries relevance today. Before we wrap up today, what is Sound Doctrine and what happens to organizations who don't have it? Well, I'm not going to say that book, uh, but Sound Doctrine is a primer. It's written to teach a line level that, one, there is a science to support sound decision-making and planning during times of crises, and, two, explain some of the fundamental principles, the most important, like initiative and tempo and things like that. 
it's not by itself, but it's it's still after 20 years still in print. And one of the things that's interesting is, is that it doesn't really have a competitor yet, and that's really quite disappointing. I mean, it doesn't. That's not what the publisher wants to hear. But I thought it would be stimulating in the sense that it would be enlightening. Uh, but by and large, everybody relies it almost to the point of scriptural prophecy, uh, rather than seeing it as the primer that it really is. So. Well, I strongly recommend your work to our listeners, um, and many of your articles are actually available online, so people can access them that way. But Sid, if you were to recommend three books to our listeners, uh, other than your own, what would they be? I've actually had some time to think about this. I just finished Call Sign Chaos by uh, Jim Mattis. It was an outstanding book. Uh, I couldn't say enough good things, not only in examples, but uh, things that he made mistakes on when he was a battalion commander and was so tired uh, that he bypassed uh, a threat. Uh, it is really almost like a mentor. It, he comes across, it's an easy read. So that I would uh, highly recommend that. It's, it's just come out. Uh, it's so good. I bought I, uh, the Audible copy so I can listen to it when I do my bicycle rides mm-hmm. and uh, the hard copy. Another one, and this is another one of the books that uh, that I bought in I bought in my Kindle, so I can do electronic searches. I bought in hard copy for reference, and I listened to it on on Audible as well. Is Leading the Charge by uh, General Zinni. Uh, that's another one, and he gives a lot of axioms uh, as well. And in fact, I would put it up equal to uh, Call Sign Chaos. And interestingly enough, one of the most influential books of my career is not so much leadership per se, as far as crises, but in management. And that is an old book. Uh, Oh, it's got to be 30 years old by now. In Search of Excellence by Tom Peters and Bob Waterman. Uh, It was recommended reading when I was a sergeant, and I literally fell in love with it. Uh, I've outlined it. I've written in the margins. Uh, I've recommended it to people that are preparing for orals. Uh, but the, the central theme that comes through this uh, is, is that leadership role uh, is an involved role, an active role, and an interactive role. And they're the ones that can that coin the term management by wandering around. Boy, I cannot tell you, as I went up through the ranks, the, the value of being able to, to talk to a guy that was upset uh, and in some cases was actually venting. To the point where I put up a sign in my office that controversy and mediocrity cannot coexist in the sense that uh, they were upset with how something was being done uh, and they would vent. And I tried to be the person they could vent to because I was usually in a position as a captain or above uh, to actually be able to change that. So those three books, uh, I don't think you can go wrong. They're they're all easy reads. Uh, They're all available. Uh, and to be honest with you, I think they're going to be in print for decades just because they're so good at what they do. Excellent. Well, I think you've given us a lot of homework for today and food for thought. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Uh, thank you for sharing your expertise. You're welcome. Thank you very much for asking
The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.